The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Genesis. It's really important that we uh, look at these stories and understand what uh, the author is communicating to us through the lens of, uh, first of all, of Genesis. Right? And one of the problems is that oftentimes we, we look at these stories from our 21st century context, uh, you know, after 2,000 years of church and after 4,000 years of the law and moral codes and, and all this stuff. And it's hard for us to really peel away some of our preconceived ideas about things and, and really get down to um, how the first readers would have understood this and to, to really get the picture of what's going on here. So to do that, to help us kind of focus before we look at it, it's real important to review a little bit uh, the main themes of Genesis. Because as we look at this story, this story very much fits into the main themes of Genesis. And to help us understand what uh, what this story is about and why it got put in here, uh, we need to look at it through those lenses. So just a quick reminder, uh, the, in, in Genesis there's basically, in the first 11 chapters, there's God creating and giving to humanity a, a clear mandate for what human beings are supposed to be on the earth, right? And then in chapters 12 through 50, uh, God calls out and chooses Abraham specifically and he gives a very special promise and, and also a mandate that goes with that promise that dominates the rest of the book. So if we break the book into those two big sections, 1 through 11 and 12 through 50, in both sections there's a mandate that drives the book. Right? So the mandate at creation is this in, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. At the pinnacle of creation, uh, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created the male and female he created them. And God blessed them. Okay, and that's a theme. In both mandates and both promises, God blesses mankind. So he blesses them, and he said to them, here's the mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? So God's, this is, I, I love this, because this is the one command of God that humanity has pretty much got right. He says, go have lots of babies. Go make babies. Right? And most of us haven't had a problem with that, you know, and, and uh, certainly our, our heart goes out to those who have had problems bearing children. And, uh, but, but in terms of motives, you know, in terms of motivation, uh, you know, it's not one we've had to, like, pay people for the most part to do, right? Uh, we, we just jump right on that and go multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. And uh, the population of the earth is hitting now, what, six point something billion? I'd say we're doing okay on that one. I don't know what full is, but we're getting there. Um, okay, so that's the first part. And then, and then of course, uh, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, heaven, every living thing. We're to, have, we're to govern. So the mandate is to fill the earth, to, to multiply, to be fruitful, and to govern all creation. Right? Um, then you fast forward to Genesis 12 through about 24. And God starts, uh, calls out Abraham, and from the very beginning, he gives Abraham some very clear and specific promises. And that's uh, stated uh, well for my purposes in Genesis 17, where he says this, This is my covenant with you, Abraham. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, it will be called Abraham. For you will be father of many nations. Okay, so and again, it's a very similar thing. Uh, he's to multiply. He's to fill the earth. He's to have lots of descendants, children and grandchildren. Uh, I will make you extremely fruitful, it says. It uses that same word. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings. Okay? Now, these are important things, and I'm highly lighting these now uh, because as we look through the story of Tamar, these things come up again. Okay? So you need to keep these in mind. Fruitful, nations, kings. God will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Uh, then God said to Abraham, because that's the promise part, now here's the mandate. He says, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant, okay? which in this context has to do with circumcision, but also has to do with you know, his job is to multiply, to be fruitful. 
to be the father of many nations and kings. And, uh, and he shares that that is a responsibility for Abraham as well as all your descendants have this responsibility. Okay, So if you're born, if you're one of Abraham's children, you have a job to do. And your job is what? Make babies. Okay, Pretty simple. Uh, Genesis 22 puts it this way. He kind of adds an extra important, significant twist. He says again, I will surely bless you. There's that formula again. It's about blessing. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it's not just that God is exclusively blessing Abraham and his descendants apart from the rest of humanity, but rather that through Abraham and through his faithfulness to that mandate, that through his descendants, God would in turn bless all humanity. And so you and I today are blessed because Abraham was faithful to that mandate. And of course we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who was the ultimate descendant and offspring of Abraham, through whom God has blessed all the world. Okay, so that's a quick summary. And that kind of capsulizes what the book of Genesis is about. A lot of other sub-themes and um, sidetrails, but that, that, that's the book of Genesis. So as we look through these stories, we need to see it through those, those eyes, that lens. Um, and of course, especially in, in the story of the patriarchs, the crisis or the predicament that comes up is how that promise looks like it's not going to get fulfilled, right? So of course, the first predicament is no offspring. Uh, God says, Abraham, you're going to have tons of children, but he can't, he can't manage, try as he may, he can't manage to produce one child with Sarah. Right? Lots of children with other ladies, but not with Sarah. And so that's the crisis, that's the predicament that has to be solved. And of course, God takes care of it. In the end, God solves the problem. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah have the same problem. Can't have kids. Right? And that threatens to end the promise. And that's the crisis, the predicament, the tension point in the book. But what happens? Well, they go to a fertility clinic. No, no, no. (laughs) They pray. They pray and God takes care of it. God solves the problem. God moves the promise forward, right? Then uh, there's the threat of death. You know, first Abraham's threatened to get killed off by King Abimelech. Then Isaac's threatened to get killed off by King Abimelech. Um, Jacob is is being threatened to be killed by his brother Esau. And now in the last chapter, Joseph almost gets killed by his brothers, right? And of course, if the, the promise is offspring, the death of offspring is a problem, right? So that's a, a, a predicament, a crisis. And again, in each of those situations, uh, God takes care of it, right? Uh, the characters in the story don't save themselves. In the end, God comes and God promises as in the story of Jacob. He says, I'll take care of you. I will bring you back to the land of promise, right? Another crisis or predicament is that the children leave the family and the land of promise. That was a problem with Jacob. Jacob goes back to Padan Aram, which was a problem because if he starts having kids and family there and doesn't come back to the land of promise, it shortcuts the promise. Right? So again, God brings him back. And now we see here Joseph being sold off, drug off to Egypt. Again, it's another crisis point in the story. And then we come to this uh, wonderful story about Judah and Tamar. And uh, every time in the story, the crisis usually comes down to one of those issues, childlessness or death, or the, end of the, the end of the family line, right? That's the crisis. That's the, the dilemma. And in each of these stories, we see what? The character solving it themselves? No. We see God being faithful to his promise, right? And taking care of it and moving the promise forward. So we need to read chapter 38 with some of those things in mind, right? And uh, I'm going to read through and kind of go through the first part of my outline. We're going to look at the predicament, the obstacles to the promise that are highlighted in chapter 38. And uh, so as I read through, maybe some of these predicaments you'll, you'll catch on. You'll see these, okay? In verse 1, it says, About this time Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. Okay, now all of a sudden, after all this great background I've given you, you should be going, oh, 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 there's a problem, right? The problem is, he leaves home, right? He's leaving the family. Uh, And if you remember in the other stories, marrying outside the family 
even though you know it makes you um, come from certain states in America. I won't name the state this morning. I'll be kind. Where inbreeding is apparently okay. See, in the, in, in the Old Testament, this was a good thing. Marrying outside the family was a problem. So here he's gone off. He's marrying Canaanite women. It's a problem. And he's left home. Right? So you see Joseph's gone. Now Judah's going his own way. What happens if the family disintegrates? Right? So you see this kind of family disintegration, the threat of the family all just wandering off to their own corners of the world and kind of the end of it. Right? Um, so he sees, and I love that this Canaanite woman doesn't even get a name. She's the daughter of Shua. The whole story never gets a name. Uh, shows where she writes in the story. Um, says he slept with her. She became pregnant. She gives birth to a son. Named the boy Ur. She becomes pregnant again. Gave birth to another son. She named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Sheila. At the time of Sheila's birth, they were living at Tezim. Okay, so you see Judah moving off, starting his own family, kind of disconnecting himself from his brothers, from his father, from the promise. And the language here uh, that's used of portraying his marriage to this woman is not, it's not um, positive, okay? It kind of it cave-managed, okay? It kind of gives this picture of Judah going off, seeing this girl, grunting a few times, grabbing her by the hair, dragging her back to his cave, sleeping with her and having children, okay? Not exactly, you know, romantic, okay? That's what he does. And so we kind of wonder... And then remember, Judah was the instigator uh, who came up with this brilliant idea to sell Joseph so they could profit by his slavery. Right? So we start to ask questions. You know, if these are the descendants of, of Jacob, I think we're in trouble here. Because this Ju- Judah, uh, it's not looking like a real great character. And he's a main character in the story. Okay? He was this main character at the beginning of the Joseph story, and he comes back later. And we wonder about this guy. He's not exhibiting real strong faith. No encounter with God like Jacob. He's not making any great declarations. He's just grunting and dragging women around and sleeping with them. Okay, well, in the course of time, a long time, about 20 years, okay, long enough for his sons to grow up and become marrying age. All right? One of the things that serves in the story is to highlight how long Joseph is in slavery in Egypt. Okay, so... While Joseph's off in slavery, years are going by, decades are going by, right? In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. Okay, now, uh, it's important that she gets a name, okay? uh, Judah's wife doesn't get a name, the whole story. We find out Tamar's name right away, okay? This is important. She is an important character in the story. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Uh, second problem, uh, first problem is family dis- disintegration. Second problem that starts to worry, should, ought, should worry us a lot is the wicked offspring. Now, I mean, you've got to get the, the context here. Judah is hardly like St. Judah at this point, right? I mean, he, he's, he's, to me, he's like pretty wicked already. Okay, his son is so bad, God kills him. Okay, it doesn't say how bad he was or what he did, but, I mean, it was worse than Judah, right? He was wicked. And, and clearly he had crossed some kind of line in the sand that God says, okay, that's enough. And he it says the Lord himself snuffs out his life, right? He's so wicked, so wicked, okay? So firstborn son, cross him out. Okay, two sons left, right? So Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of the man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Okay, this is what's known, uh, you may know this as the Leverite, Leverite marriage. Okay? Leverite is the Latin word that means brother-in-law. Okay? And it means the brother-in-law marriage. Later on in the Deuteronomy and in the, in the law, uh, Moses prescribed this very custom, but it was a custom that was actually commonly practiced in the ancient Near East, in many cultures. In fact, they've uncovered some great documents explaining how this law worked. And its main purpose was twofold. First, was to protect the widow. You know, in those days they didn't have social welfare programs. If, uh, uh, and in that culture, women were very dependent on men to protect them and to provide for them. 
Uh, they were very much vulnerable and at risk in those cultures. And so when a, when a, a woman's husband died, uh, there was nobody to take care of her, nobody to provide income for her. There were no government programs you could apply to. And so the way it worked is uh, the law, the custom of the day, required that if, if, the, if her deceased husband had a brother, he was required, not, not an option, okay? It wasn't that he could marry her if he wanted. It was required, mandated by law, that, she, that he had to marry her and produce children to, to take care of her, right? So that was the first thing. Second thing, though, is it, it ensured, uh, and this is more in an Israelite context, it ensured that the name of the brother would go on. Well, why was that important? Well, because that's the mandate, right? You're going to produce lots of children. You're going to become nations, right? If the brother dies, that, that line of the family gets cut off. So it was important for the, the mandate of God that, uh, that the brother do his duty. Okay, that's what it was called. It was, it was a duty to bear an heir through, uh, through the widow, through his brother's widow, and keep his brother's line going, right? And that was a Leverite, Leverite marriage. In, later in Hebrew law, which came later, okay, they didn't know about this, but later uh, that had very clear and specific guidelines which um, were well spelled out, and it only included uh, brothers, first of all, who lived together, and then it could kind of extend out to next of kin. So, for example, in the story of Ruth, Boaz, who's neither a brother or even an uncle, he's a distant relative, uh, assumes that role. Okay? However, in uh, other Assyrian and Hittite cultures, it would go like this. You would marry the brother, and then if he died, you would marry the next brother, so on until there were no brothers left. Then uh, the father-in-law actually had the obligation to fulfill this duty. Okay? Uh, so, again, of course, for our, in our culture, this is all kind of weird. We go, you know, uh, hopefully you like your sister-in-law, and, you know, the thought of it would be an okay thing. Um, it's kind of weird, and I granted, it's kind of weird for us, because we don't, we don't do this anymore, you know. It was very important, though, in their culture, okay, is how it preserved and protected society. Um, okay, so, so uh, and, and just so you know a little bit more a lot of detail you, you may not really care about, but it helps understand the story. Uh, for a woman who's widowed, if you're, if you're a single girl in this time period, up until the day you get married, you're under the protection of your father's house. Okay? So, uh, for example, with the case of Mary and Joseph, uh, when Mary becomes pregnant before wedlock, the problem really falls on her family. Okay? It was really her family's honor that was at stake because it was the job of the dad to protect the daughter. But after the daughter married and became uh, the, the wife of a, of, a, of a husband, now the responsibility for her care and her protection falls under the, the side of the, of, of the husband. Okay? So when that husband dies, she's now under the care and protection of Jacob. I'm, I'm not Jacob, Judah. Okay? So even though she's... She's, uh, you know, still loves her family. Her family's still alive. She's technically and legally under the stewarding care of Judah, as long as she is a widow. And the way it would work like this: uh, as long as she was a widow and Judah had more sons, she was obligated to that family, and Judah was obligated to her to take care of her, to provide, to to make sure that this Leverite marriage took place. Right now, if if uh, Onan says, I don't want to marry her, you know, she just is not attractive to me, and, uh, you know, whatever, uh, I don't want to marry her, the, it was up to Judah to release her as a widow. And by doing that, she could then go marry anybody she wanted. But as long until she, he was released by Judah, she was bound uh, by oath and by betrothal to the next brother of kin. Okay? So that's, that's the context. So, um, so, so that's what Judas says. He, he, he does his part. He carries out his side of the bargain. He says to Onan, go marry Tamar. Uh, literally, it says, that's kind of a kind translation. Literally, it says, go in and sleep with Tamar and have children by her. Okay? Not soon that marriage goes with that. But really what he says is, you need to go do your duty, uh, sleep with her, and produce children. Okay? And uh, so, but it says in verse 9, Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. 
Right? So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. Okay, so rather than fulfilling his duty all the way, <laughs> completely, he practices kind of an ancient version of birth control to guarantee that she does not have children. Right? So the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life as well. All right, so here again, wicked offspring. Okay, so Ur was wicked. Onan, as it turns out, is just as wicked. Now here's a question to, to ponder. It says that the Lord considered it evil that Onan practiced birth control. Okay. Now we could, you know, if we were Catholic, we could really have fun with this one. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to say that it's evil for you to practice birth control or, you know, in our cultural context. And the real, but the real question is, why was it evil for Onan to practice birth control, to, to make sure that uh, Tamar did not pr- produce children? Why was it wicked? Okay. What was wrong with that? I mean, he was taking care of her. He was, at some level, you know, providing for her. What was the wickedness in it? Well, again, we've got to look at it in the context of the book of Genesis. What was the wickedness? Well, he's not moving forward. He's not doing his part to move forward the promise of God. He's not keeping his God-given mandate to be fruitful and multiply and bear descendants of Abraham. Right? That's the wickedness. Okay? Not to mention, I mean, it was kind of a creepy thing to do to your brother to say, well, I'm not going to give my brother children because it's very selfish. But more than his own selfishness, the real wickedness you see, it always has to go back to God. Uh, important lesson here. Oftentimes we judge sin based on how it affects us personally, right? We think something sinful and terrible if it, if it uh, causes me problems personally, right? Sin ultimately, though, is against God, right? True wickedness always has to be measured and counted in how it affects God himself. And in this situation, in this case, the problem was... God's plan was being thwarted by his action. That was what made it wicked. Okay, not just that he was harming his brother, but that he was violating the mandate of God. Right? For us, when we, when we think about sin in our own life, that's the question to ask. How is what I am doing, not just causing sin for myself and people around me, how is it violating the purpose and plan of God? That's what makes it ultimately wicked. Okay, so problem with wicked offspring, and now, because they were wicked, dead offspring. Okay, so we got two down, one to go, right? So there's still hope. Uh, you know, three strikes are out. We still got one batter up. Except his dad benches him, <laughs> right? It says, um, uh, Judah said to his, to, Judah said to Tamar after this, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. That's a very loaded sentence, okay? He's, he's telling her two things. First of all, he's saying, go back home to your father's house because I don't want to take care of you, all right? I don't want to deal with the responsibility of providing for you. So I'm sending you back to your father's house, but I'm sending you back to your father's house as what? A widow, okay? In other words, he is not releasing her, right? And really, by doing this, he's putting Tamar in a double bind. He's saying to her... Um, you know, you're still obligated in my family. You can't, you're not free to go marry. You're not go, free to go find a, another husband. But I'm not going to take care of you, right? You're bound to my family until Sheila is old enough to marry you. Uh, but what is his motive in all this? Okay, he says, but Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would, die, would also die like his two brothers. You see what he's, you see what he did, did to her in that sentence, in that, in that act, all right? He just sentenced her to a life of solitude with no children and no possibility ever of marriage. Because the only person she can ever marry until he releases her is Sheila. And Judah's already made up his mind that this lady is a, you know, a black widow. Everybody she marries dies. And I'm not about to sacrifice my third son to this lady. Uh, sadly, he doesn't see the wickedness of his own sons that was the cause of their death, right? Probably because he himself is so wicked himself. He was so caught up in his own sin, right? He, he doesn't see the wickedness of his own children. 
So he blames their death on innocent, helpless Tamar. And then he dooms her to a life of singleness where she's imprisoned really in her father's house with no option now of having children, of marrying, of having really any kind of life in that day and in that society. And he's made up his mind. He's written her off, but not set her free. Do you see what he's done there? Um, So... So now, and, and here's the deal. What Judah did in that, and again, it's wickedness. And it's not wickedness just because of what it does to Tamar. Not wickedness just because of what it does to Judah. But what he's doing is he's messing here with the mandate and the promise, right? He has effectively, potentially, ended his line, right? Now, we don't know if Sheila's going to grow up and you know, have children with other women or not. We don't know. But, you know, what if he dies, Okay. He's threatening the line because if there's no grandchildren for not producing heirs of Abraham, it's the end of the road, end of the line, and it's, it's, it's a predicament for the promise of God. Right? So that's the tension here. And that's kind of where that scene or that chapter ends. Tamar's at home, uh, Judah's moving on, and uh, Sheila is growing up. Years go by, Sheila gets older, and Judah does nothing to fulfill the Levite marriage obligation to Tamar. Well, how does it resolve? Um, in a very unexpected way. Of course, we, we may know the story. Uh, it says in verse 12, Some years later, Judah's wife died. The nameless lady. Okay? Uh, after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of sheep. Someone told Tamar, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Tamar to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing. Okay, it's an important thing. She's still many years have gone by. She is still wearing widow's clothing. Why? It's because she's still sad and grieving her two lost husbands, maybe. But really what's significant about her widow's clothing is it means she has remained faithful to Judah's family. Because she's wearing these garments that say to the world, everybody around her, I'm not available. Okay, I'm a widow and I'm waiting for the Leverite marriage to happen. So some guy comes along and thinks she's just a hot babe. And wants to marry her, you know, he sees, oh, the widow robe. She's a widow. She is obligated to somebody else. She's off limits, right? So she's still wearing those, right? She is remaining faithful to Judah's family. She is remaining faithful to Abraham and to the promise, right? Um, but she takes off her, at this point, she takes off her, her, uh, her widow's clothes, and it uh, says that she uh, covered herself with a veil, covered her face with a veil to disguise herself, and wrapped herself up. And then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Uh, so, so she, she uh, first of all, her plight is she's single, and she's putting the pieces together. She realizes um, Shayla's well old enough to be married. It's obvious. Judah has no intentions of giving her to him, right? Uh, She's still wearing the widow's robe. She knows she can't get married. She knows she cannot bear children, right? She cannot move the promise forward, right? So uh, we don't know all of what's going on in her mind, but she hatches this plan, okay? Tamar's plot. She disguises herself. She takes off her widow's clothes. She puts on some... You know, nice clothes. She goes out and she sits at the gate of the city in a rather lonely, remote village on the way to Timnah. Uh, and in that culture that day, girls did not normally go sit alongside the road single by, by themselves alone, right? Unless you were planning to sell yourself, right? That's what prostitutes did. Because not so much the veil, probably not even so much what she wore that signified she was for sale, but it was more where she positioned herself, right? So a single guy is going by, and sure enough, here comes Judah by, and he sees her. And again, a man of great character and integrity, okay? 
Uh, it says that Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute. Right? And since she had covered her face, he didn't recognize her. So he stopped and propositioned her. Okay, he gets kind of right to the point. Let me have sex with you. Okay, no small talk. Uh, he did not realize that she was his own daughter-in-law. Uh, and she says, well, how much will you pay to have sex with me? And Tamar asked. And he says, well, I'll give you a goat from my flock. And she said, well, what will you give me as a, as a guarantee that you will send the goat? And he says, well, what kind of guarantee do you want? And she's been thinking about this, right? She has a plan. Okay? She's thought this out well in advance. And she says to him, oh, it's easy. Give me your ID card, okay? your seal, its cord, and the walking stick you are carrying. Okay, in those days, the seal was a very unique ring that would have been used to stamp letters, also on pottery to mark property. They would have been very unique to, to Judah alone. Also in those days, their walking sticks, oftentimes they would elaborately carve the head with uh, family emblems, uh, sometimes their location. Um, basically, you know, he hands her his credit card and driver's license, okay, and library card, okay. Okay, I mean, he IDs himself. Okay, now, clearly, not only does Judah lack character, he lacks any sense of intelligence. He's about to go sleep with a prostitute, and he's, you know, and he's filling out all the forms on the webpage before you enter the porn site, you know, with the right information. Okay, okay so obviously, you know, you know, oh, what he's thinking. Well, I know what he's thinking. Uh, it's not about his his uh, identity, right? So, uh, short and sweet and simple, it says, um, so Judah gave them, he had sex with her, and she became pregnant. Okay, so the whole act gets condensed into one three-verb, very short sentence. Um, these stories have some amazing literary devices, and when I haven't gone into it, it's, it's uh, kind of overwhelming. But just so you know, that sentence would be the very center of the story. Okay, if you were to break it down structurally, that's the, the center of the story. Okay? Um, and it says that uh, uh, after that, she went back home, took off her veil, put, on her weather, put back on her widow's clothing as usual. Uh, later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adulamite to take the young goat to the woman to, uh, to pay her and to get his guarantee back. But Hira, lo and behold, couldn't find her. So, she asked, so he asked the man who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute? Literally in the Hebrew it says the holy woman. Okay, in, the, in Bible times, holy woman was code word for temple prostitute. Um, who was sitting beside the road to Adonis and I am. And they said, well, we never had a shrine, prost shrine prostitute here. So Hira returned to Judah and told them, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village said they've never had a, a shrine prostitute there. And so Judah replies, well, let her keep the things I gave her. I, you know, I tried. I sent the young goat as we agreed. He's a man of integrity. <laughs> he, keeps his, he kept his end of the bargain. Um, way to go, Judah. He says, we'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back to look for her again. Okay, and he would be. He probably already was, actually. Um, about three months later... Uh, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this, she has become pregnant. Um, so here was Tamar's plot. She's going to ensnare Judah. And I don't know, I mean, I, I can't imagine Tamar envisioned that she would necessarily get pregnant. But certainly her plot was to blackmail Judah. Uh, and I don't know if she kept his things hoping that uh, she could you know, somehow blackmail him and frame him into giving him Sheila. We, we don't know. Again, you've got to remember, in her culture, in her day, if the three brothers were not available for the Leverite marriage, the father-in-law was a legitimate candidate, okay? Weird as it sounds to us, in that culture, that would have been an okay thing, right? Um, and so she is determined to have children. But it's significant to note that her determination to have children is not just to have children in general. Okay? There's a lot of other ways she could have done this. She could have, you know, Judah didn't care about her. She kind of got that figured out. She could easily have taken off her widow's clothes and started circulating in her village, found a nice guy, gone off, got married, had children on her own. But she doesn't do that, right? She doesn't want just children. 
She's not just looking to protect or take care of herself. What does she do? She waits until she can get a child from the line of Judah. Right? It's important to see that. Her, in, her motive, her intention is that she wants to do what? She wants to move God's promise forward. Okay, whatever Judah and her sons told us, she knew enough to know that I don't want to just have any kids. I want to have a child in the line of Abraham. I want to bear a descendant in the line of Judah. Right? Now, her methods, you know, are a little unique. Okay? Uh, in Genesis, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Genesis that is not a model for us. Okay? Important to note that. Okay? Uh, we, we can't do it this way, just so you know, even though they did. Um, and, and the question really comes, um, what does the author and what does the reader think of Tamar, right? Um, do we think of, you know, when I read this, I think of her as kind of a despicable, deceitful, conniving woman who stooped to the lowest possible level just to have a baby, right? But really, what does the author of the book think of her? Well, let's see what the story, how the story ends. Um, word gets out that she's pregnant, and, and uh, Judah finds out, and what does Judah say? Well, bring her out and burn her for her immorality. You talk about a double standard, okay? His, his immorality was perfectly fine, but when his daughter-in-law is immoral, we're going to burn her at the stake, right? That's some hypocrisy for you. Um, but as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message and package to her father-in-law. She said, The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely and tell me whose cord, seal, and walking stick are these. So Judah gets a little package, COD. The mailman comes, pushes the doorbell, reads a little box. Judah opens it up, a little note. Check this out, right? Love your daughter-in-law, Tamar. You're pregnant, daughter-in-law, Tamar. By the way, P.S., the owner of these happens to be the dad of my child, right? Oh, there's the credit card, the driver's license, and the library card, right? Busted, right? And notice what Judah says. This is the most important line in the whole story. This is really the punchline of the story. What does Judah say? He recognizes them immediately, duh, and he says what? She is more righteous than I, right? She is more righteous than I. The question is, what does he mean by that, and why does he say it? Uh, well, again, we've got to look at this through the, through the lens of Genesis. What is the mandate in Genesis? To move the promise, the mandate, and the plan of God forward. Be fruitful and multiply, make many nations, and make many kings. Had Judah been committed to that promise, had Judah been doing his part to carry out that mandate, well, he went to a certain degree, but when it came down to it, he stopped short of fulfilling his obligation to Tamar and to God to move forward the promise. Right? But when it came to Tamar, she was faithful to move forward the promise of God. Thus, she was more righteous than Judah. Right? Uh, the author of Genesis really portrays and, and puts the spotlight on Tamar as a heroine in the story. Right? Now we kind of look at this and we go, wow, holy cow, Tamar a heroine? Yeah, you know, just so rocks our morality and ethics, it's hard for us to understand that. In this story, though, she is, and, and her, her heart is treasured by God and counted as righteous because she was committed to moving forward the purpose and plan of God. Right? She was willing and committed to do whatever it took to see the promise of God fulfilled through her. She wanted to be a part of what God was doing in the family of Abraham. Uh, and, and interestingly in this, and, and to give a little positive note on Judah's side, Judah confesses his mistake. Okay? And a lot of commentators the scholars believe that this is really a turning point for Judah. Later on in the Joseph story, Judah is a much different man. A lot of people think that this may have been a, a turning point in Judah's life because he, maybe for the first time in his life, got a clue of the, 
the, the sin in his own life and confessed it and saw the righteousness of Tamar who was this Canaanite woman who was more committed to the plan of God than he was. Right? And it says that he never slept with her again, but it's implied that he, and we know, that uh, she became part of the family. She had and bore grandchildren to Abraham. And it says when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. Okay? Now, the first five verses, God is mentioned. Okay? In the first five verses, what is God doing? Remember? He's killing people. <laughs> he, kills, he kills Judah's two sons. Okay? At the end of the story, God's not specifically mentioned, but we know where do, who makes babies ultimately. Where, where does life come from? God. Why did Tamar get pregnant? You know, one shot, she gets pregnant. Who gets the credit? God, right? God gives life, okay? Uh, this was not the first time she had had sex. She had, had two, two husbands. Granted, one husband, you know, did the whole birth control thing. We assume the other husband had some kind of sexual relationships, relationship with her. God did not allow her to have sons with him. God gives her children through Judah, Okay? And not just one, but two. You know how many sets of twins are, are recorded in Scripture? Two. This is one of them. The other one's Jacob and Esau in the, in the line of Judah. Okay? Okay, so what's God doing here? He doesn't just give her sons. He gives her two sons. Okay? Um, and, they, and they're weird sons. Kind of like J- Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb. These two kind of have this dash to the finish line, right? And it's a photo finish, <laughs> okay? Um, when it was time, when, when she was in labor, one of the babies reached his hand out, crossed the finish line. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But then, he pulled his hand back, and out came his brother. Okay, photo finish, <laughs> right? And... Uh, what the midwife exclaimed, how did you break out first? So his name was Perez, which means break out. Then the baby with a scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. Okay. Um, so she has two kids. Uh, what's the significance of these babies? Okay, now if you're a Jew reading this, any time after, you know, much after the Exodus, uh, and you're reading this, you know the name Perez, right? Uh, Bible trivia quiz. Who here knows the significance of Perez? Who was Perez? Well, he's the grandfather. He is the, the line of Judah that is the direct heir to the throne of David, right? The throne, the line of David goes through Perez, which means you know, Jesus goes through Paris. What's at stake here? What's at stake is there not just some kind of generic promise? What is at stake in this story as it turns out, as we know looking back from the New Testament, is God's promise to bless the nations through you. Right? Paris is huge. Right? It's huge. This was, this was the, the line of the Messiah. Right? And Tamar gets to be grandmother to Jesus why? Because she was determined to have a baby through the line of Judah at whatever it cost her, right? Right? Well, so what does this mean for us? Um, and how do you apply this, you know, in your own life? <laughs> We've got to be careful applying this in your own life, okay? Um, it would be very easy to misapply this story, um, and I've titled this, you know, as we evaluate, as we apply it, the, the motive to your madness, right? First of all, we could easily misapply this story by assuming that the end always justifies the means, right? And, uh, and I've heard this logic among a lot of Christians who are trying to justify sinful behavior. To say, well, you know, you know it doesn't matter because it's in the end, as long as it all works out, you know? And, and uh, you know, you could misquote the story. It says, look at Tamar. You know, she, she was immoral. She did stupid things. She sinned. But, you know, it was all for a good cause, right? Well, that would be misapplying the, the Scripture. And you've got to understand, she was living in a time before the law. 
she's a Canaanite who we don't know what she knew about, right? Uh, she was living under a completely different set of laws and truth and revelation, <coughs> revelation of God than we are, okay? So if you want to justify your immoral behavior by the story of Tamar, you know, you just need to stick your head, stick your whole body in a very cold ice bath, okay, and get a, get a clue, okay? Because that would be misapplying it. But there is a way we can apply this. And uh, first thing that's important to remember in the book of Genesis, first important principle, is that God always accomplishes his purpose by grace. Right? Uh, in the end, who solved the problem? Well, Ta- Tamar was very creative. Judah contributed. <laughs> um, but in the end, who moves the promise forward? God. Right? God. In your life, who is going to move forward God's purpose and program in your life? Okay, this last week, you know, there were obstacles. My office was flooded underwater. Uh, maybe where you live was underwater. Maybe your house was underwater. It's a drag. You know, it slows things down. Uh, many other obstacles we encounter daily, right? Uh, oftentimes, you may feel like you are just you know, running into a brick wall of obstacles over and over. You ever felt that way? You try, you think you're doing what God wants you to do, you're trying to see God's promise fulfilled, and you just feel like you are hitting brick walls. Who's going to ultimately accomplish His purpose in your life? Well, God is. God is the one, ultimately, who is responsible to fulfill His plan in your life. He has a plan. And he is faithful to it, right? So we can be confident that God is going to do it in the end. In spite of our methods, which oftentimes are flawed and skewed, in spite of our, our failures and our mistakes, right? Here's the good news. I mean, here's the good news from this story. Uh, if you're even remotely trying to do God's will, even remotely, okay, who is here is, is just at least remotely trying to do God's will? Okay, remotely, I mean. The good news is, you know, you can't fail. You can't fail because it's up to God, not you, right? You can't mess it up. That's good news. For some of you, that should be really good news, right? For me, it's really good news. I can't mess it up. Uh, Another principle, last principle. Um... I think this story teaches us that in the end, our motives count for far more than our methods. Okay? Uh, God is far more concerned about the motives and intentions in your heart than he is about your methods and your techniques. Now, I'm not saying that methods don't matter. Okay? There is a good and a right way to do things in a wrong way. And, and certainly God wants our, motives, our methods to be moral, to have character and integrity. I'm not saying methods don't matter. But I, I think Scripture teaches very clearly that our motives carry far more weight with God than our methods. You know, in this story, when it comes down to it, Judah's methods were flawless. Okay, he really did, in terms of methods, everything he was supposed to. Uh, he married his sons. I mean, he went off and found a wife. Nameless. Didn't really seem to love her, but doesn't matter. The method was correct. Had babies. Method was correct. Uh, they turned out to be wicked sons. Okay, uh, he marries them off. God kills his wicked sons. Um, in the end, he you know tries to protect his third son from. Uh, his methods were right, but where was his motives? Well, as it turns out, in the end, he was being very self-centered and self-serving, and he was not concerned about the promise of God. Right? Outwardly, it all looked like a good show, like he was doing all the right things, but his motives were way off. Uh, when we look at Tamar, uh, what was her motive? Well, her motive was to see the line of Judah move forward. Her methods, I'll grant, were a bit off. You know, maybe she could have tried prayer instead. You know, or something. Um, but her heart was right, and she is honored because her motives are right. You might say, well, how was she really honored? I mean, she, was she really honored? Well, I believe not only was she honored here, but when you look through the rest of the Old Testament, Tamar is given great dignity and respect. Um, 
the book of Ruth puts it this way, and may the Lord, uh, blessing, blessing uh, Ruth, says, may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman, or I'm sorry, blessing Boaz, uh, may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman, Ruth, who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, son of Tamar. Not of Judah, okay, Tamar, of Tamar and Judah, but Tamar gets mentioned as a place of honor. Right? Uh, later, you know, uh, Ruth and Boaz have children, and their great-grandson is David. Right? When David has kids. What does he name his daughter? Tamar. Right? Tamar. Uh, God honored her heart. Right? God is far more concerned about your heart than is your methods. Um, and I would just like to leave with this last thought um, and challenge, really. You know, as we examine our life, we need to check our motives. Right? We spend tons of time, there's all kinds of books out talking about ministry methods, marriage methods, um, prayer methods, right? Methods of Bible study. We're all about methods. But what about our heart? Why are you doing what you're doing? Um, What is the right method? Well, the right and only method, really, when it comes down to it, is the cross of Christ. Okay? It, It is only by the powerful work of God that we can accomplish anything. And the only motive is to see God glorified through the unfolding of His grace in the gospel. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.